This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication, which is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're talking with our old friend Philip Ewing, National Security Editor for National Public Radio, about Trump-Russia investigation and Trump's former attorney Michael Cohen's legal issues. Phil's a veteran Washington reporter on military and security matters. We wanted to talk to him, however, today as special counsel Robert Mueller begins the second year of his investigation. Phil, let's start with what we need to know about uh, the alleged Russian payments and other payments to Trump lawyer Michael Cohen. You did a great piece uh, for NPR.org uh, last week, breaking it down. Uh, I see it as a legal morass. You probably see it from a journalistic uh, side as a morass, but try to parse it out for the average person? Why should they care? The reason they should care is because this isn't just two separate stories, one about the alleged uh, sexual relationship that President Trump may have had in 2006 with this porn actress, Stormy Daniels, and then a separate one about whether or not anyone in the Trump campaign may have conspired with the Russian government's attack on the 2016 election. The importance of the recent revelations is that those two stories actually could be connected. There could be a nexus between the two of them in the person of Donald Trump's longtime personal lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen. Cohen is a New York attorney of many years standing in the financial and real estate worlds. He's worked for Trump personally in the Trump Organization, and he was also a part of the Trump campaign and has been part of the Trump administration at a distance. He's been kept at an official arm's length from both of those, but he retains this important personal and financial and legal and business relationship with the president, which is why he's such an important figure here. And very briefly, the allegations are these. Stormy Daniels is suing Trump and Cohen to escape a non-disclosure agreement that they concluded before Election Day in 2016 because she wants to be able to talk publicly about this relationship she has, uh, she said she has with Trump without this sort of Damocles hanging over her head. Just briefly, one of the president's other lawyers, uh, former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, has connected that payment to the election quite clearly. He said on Fox News, imagine if people had learned uh, just before Election Day or just before the third president presidential debate that this woman was making these allegations about Trump. Now, Giuliani and Trump deny the underlying allegations. They say there was no actual sexual relationship between Trump and this woman, which is what it is. But we can set that aside for now and say only that Cohen has threatened Daniels and her attorney, her attorney, Michael Avenatti, that every time she talks about this allegation, she owes them a million dollars or $20 million or something like that based on this non-disclosure agreement. Daniels and Avenatti want to get out of that. And she wants to be able to be free to make public appearances and, and talk online about 
uh, whatever she wants. Avenatti, her attorney, released this document that has um, included these details about payments Cohen received from first a number of corporate entities in 2016 and 2017, and um, including as recently as this year, if I understood it correctly, as well as this alleged payment by a Russian billionaire named Victor Vexelberg. And although Trump had admitted uh, reimbursing Cohen for the payment that he made in 2016 to Stormy Daniels, what Avenatti, who is Stormy Daniels' lawyer, contends is that actually the money might have come from this Vexelberg, this foreign uh, oil and gas billionaire oligarch, and that if that's the case, that proves a direct relationship between Cohen and this Russian. And if Trump was aware of that payment, then that gives him awareness of this putative connection. Now, we should be clear uh, at this point in the conversation that the Vexelberg payment allegations and reimbursement are not substantiated. We don't have any independent confirmation that that took place. But the reason that reporters at our news organization, NPR and elsewhere, have considered the body of work from an Avenatti credible is because the other payers in his material, including Columbus Nova, um, a private wealth management company that was connected to Vexelberg through the company he controls, Renova, as well as brand name companies that you recognize, AT&T, the big telecom giant, the big Swiss pharmaceutical company, Novartis, and an important defense contractor from South Korea named Korea Aerospace Industries, all have confirmed making the payments that Avenatti detailed. So somehow he got his hands on some kind of bank records or Treasury Department documents or other material that formed the basis for this document that he released substantiating these financial financial relationships that Cohen had. And so even though I talked a moment ago about a nexus between those two stories, Stormy Daniels and Russia, there actually was a third news story that spun off of these Avenatti materials about this influence business that Cohen was running. He represented himself to these corporate clients, Korea Aerospace, AT&T, and the others, and said, you need to pay me a lot of money because I have a personal relationship with Trump, and I will go in and see him and make things happen for you because I have that kind of influence with the president. Uh, two of the companies involved, Novartis and AT&T, have apologized for entering into these relationships and said they thought it was a mistake. And in the case of AT&T, it was a major embarrassment because, meanwhile, AT&T wants to merge with the big uh, media conglomerate, Time Warner, and it apparently thought that it could help grease the wheels for that with Cohen, with Trump, which is why it paid him, according to the Washington Post, $600,000. So there's a lot of stuff there. There's a lot of names. There's a lot of connections. But it's very important for a lot of reasons. First of all, because of this influence business that we've learned Cohen was running and because of this notional potential connection between the Stormy Daniels allegations and the Russia imbroglio that is the world that we've all been living in since 2016. Okay. Now, let's let's break this down a little bit. We know Cohen was left behind. In other words, he was left in New York. Uh, many news reports have indicated that he was thinking that he was going to get a, a noted position in the White House, maybe even chief of staff. Uh, but he was left in New York. There was somewhat a distance between uh, the president and and Cohen. At least uh, at, at first glance, there was uh, a distance. You've got all these big companies paying this guy to do what? I mean, the, the contracts and what I've read, even in your great story, really vague as to what he was supposed to do for him. 
That's a great question. I don't know that anyone has seen the underlying documents that describe the expectations of these clients uh, for Cohen or of Cohen. But the business model that has been described in the Avenatti materials and the statements by his corporate customers is a very familiar one for people in Washington. A lot of the way influence works in Washington is a a knowledgeable and experienced and senior person gets out of officialdom. They leave the Congress, they leave the military, they leave an administration or a regulatory agency, and they have a lot of valuable personal relationships with that uh, agency or institution they used to be a part of. And if you're a defense company and you want the Speaker of the House to know that it's very important for you for the Navy to buy more P-8 Poseidon Naval Patrol aircraft uh, and your Boeing, you might pay someone who you know has a relationship with the speaker or people in his office to go in because they know each other. They're they're friends. They work together. And uh, in that conversation, you on the outside say, Mr. Speaker, I'm here on behalf of my new client Boeing and they're big fans of yours and they just want to make sure that you remember the importance about anti-submarine warfare when you are looking at the appropriations bill that comes up. And it could be any permutation of messages like that from any number of clients. But let me jump in here. Isn't that lobbying? It is lobbying and it's in many cases it's perfectly legal, although there are professional requirements, there are legal reporting standards. And this uh, uh, body of law or this body of regulation has tripped up people in the Trump world already in this story. Uh, You remember Donald Trump's former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort. One of the charges that federal prosecutors have made against him is that he was effectively acting as an agent of a foreign power based on his work on behalf of uh, a former Ukrainian leader. And you're supposed to register when you do that. Now, in the world of uh, the Foreign Agents Registration Act, or FARA as it's called, it's kind of a, a wink and a nod situation because the Justice Department has a lot of important bad guys to go after with the uh, enforcement that, ISTA, that it does in the FBI. And so FARA was kind of a joke for a lot of people for a long time. And when uh, Manafort was charged with violating FARA reporting, people said, you know, come on, are you going to send this guy to federal prison for a parking ticket? This is not a big deal because everybody does this. But it's an example of the kind of legal trouble that you can get into if you're not being careful about how you practice these things. And I should also add just very briefly, there are ways that very important and powerful former members of Congress especially get around this because um, if I understand correctly, the the person who counts as a lobbyist, who, who has to register as a lobbyist, is someone who spends more than a certain percentage of their billable work doing this type of advocacy. I think it used to be 30 or 35 percent. And so if you don't, you don't have to register as a lobbyist, even though you might still be exploiting your personal relationships or your knowledge about people in government to do those kinds of things. And so a former leadership uh, official from Congress can go and work for a K Street uh, lobbying firm or a law firm and have one or two important meetings at the highest level and make a great deal of money from clients for that access without ever technically being a lobbyist because most of the time they aren't lobbying. Uh, There was a little kerfuffle, if memory serves, in 2012 with the former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, who had been a lobbyist for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the big um, mortgage uh, backing institutions, as they then were. And he said, well, I wasn't lobbying. I was providing them historical advice or or words to that effect. And I think technically the speaker was probably correct because there's there's a threshold you have to cross to count as a lobbyist. 
getting back to Cohen and what Cohen was doing, uh, some of the companies involved here have basically said, said that they regret this because they didn't get anything from him. So they're willing to pay lobbyists and have what are, what are called legislative affairs offices in Washington, but they can get results. They can have meetings with people in Congress and write the bill in the way they want. And Cohen apparently was not able to provide the outcome that Novartis and AT&T at least wanted in terms of the access that he was providing for the president. What Novartis told our network was that it only had one meeting with Cohen, but because the contract it concluded with him could only be terminated for cause and had to run for an entire year, they paid him $100,000 a month for the following 12 months. So that's $1.2 million for no work with the expectation of no result on his behalf. What we're talking about is a breach of contract, which are routinely litigated, especially by major corporations, all the time, but not so in this case. Correct. And one um, report that has appeared in the pharma medical trade press, um, which are much closer, which is, I should say, much closer to these guys, especially in the case of a Swiss company, than certainly we are in Washington covering uh, Washington institutions. One account that they had was that Novartis, after it had signed this deal, kind of felt like it had a wolf by the ears, and that if it canceled this relationship with Cohen, even though the company leaders said they weren't satisfied with what he could offer, then that would uh, draw the ire of Trump because Cohen had represented to them that he had Trump's ear. And if Novartis walked away and didn't pay him the money it had promised, he might go to Trump and say, those Swiss Novartis guys, they're bad news. I want you to slam them with the FDA and get vengeance on my behalf. And the Trump administration was so new in terms of the person of Trump and the people who were coming in from outside in 2017 that it was probably a smart play from the perspective of these companies to establish these relationships and keep them going because you just didn't know what was going to happen. We've never had a president like Trump before. He's, you know, never, he's, he's, a, he's a, a, a total unknown quantity to the powerful figures who um, get so much of their work done by giving money to political figures in Washington. And so at the time for Novartis and at and and these other companies, it seemed prudent to keep Cohen on the payroll just to have him just in case. And in the case of AT&T, um, there's been another little problem for the administration because uh, another of Trump's <laughs> lawyers, Giuliani, who we talked about, said that, in fact, uh, the president said, no, we're not going to have this AT&T and uh, Time Warner merger, which is problematic because although the Trump administration and the Trump Justice Department, as the president calls it, have sued to oppose the merger of AT&T and Time Warner, they have also represented that there was no interference or role by the president whatsoever. These agencies are supposed to be independent and supposed to take these actions without any kind of political inter interference because there's an antitrust case in the view of the Justice Department that says, uh, for example, we think it would be bad for consumers or we think it would be anti-competitive for the marketplace if these two companies merged. Now, Giuliani is saying that Trump was involved, that he expressed internally his opposition to this merger, which is why the Justice Department is suing to prevent it. Um, I am not an expert in this world, but my colleagues who are and who have paid attention to the court proceedings say that actually things are not going the Justice Department's way in terms of this antitrust case. So one of the implications of this revelation about Cohen's influence business is the Justice Department, um, you know, has a very awkward uh, dilemma on its hands yeah, if right. AT&T and Time Warner tell the judge 
Judge, I want to call these press reports to your attention about the personal advocacy that was being done by the president, apparently, um, based on the payments he was getting, uh, or I should say based on the payments his personal attorney was getting uh, from one of the parties that we're, um, you know, representing here in this in this case. There's another aspect to this which hasn't gotten a lot of attention, um, which is that Korea Aerospace, which is one of these other companies, is uh, in a business relationship with the world's biggest defense contractor, Lockheed Martin, to sell a new trainer aircraft to the Air Force called the T-50. The Air Force's old fleet of trainer aircraft are old and wearing out, and it wants to buy a whole new fleet of trainer aircraft to educate pilots to fly the new F-35 fighter, which is also made by Lockheed, by the way. Um, the Korea airspace, aerospace payments to Cohen raise kind of a difficult question for Lockheed and uh, KAI if they're awarded this contract for this T-50 trainer because the other vendors, including Boeing, for example, if they want to file a protest can say, here's one of the parties in this program making payments to the president's personal lawyer to get help with some kind of advice. And we feel that that's an unfair advantage. And we ask GAO to throw out this award and reopen the process or give the award to us. Now, we're not there yet because the Air Force hasn't awarded the contract for that new jet trainer, but these are the kinds of questions that come up inside the family in Washington anytime there's a big program like this. And the last time the Air Force had to award a big contract in the case of the tanker program, it took them three times. They awarded it to Boeing, and then that was thrown out because of some illegal payments that were involved from Boeing to the Air Force. Then they awarded it to the big European consortium, EADS. Then that was thrown out. And then finally, on the third time, Boeing was able to get it free and clear. But every expression of what appears to be unlawful influence or these payments complicates matters for the Defense Department in the case of what could be an $11 billion program. Well, being a lawyer and a journalist, and you being a journalist, we go around through life with questions <laughs> all the time, <laughs> more questions than than we have answers. So let me back up here. And what you've all described and what I've heard is a lot of unethical, uh, potentially unethical behavior uh, on the part of Cohen, uh, perhaps some civil uh, fraud uh, and perhaps some lobbying, uh, as you told, uh, said, parking ticket kind of things, that would not raise to the level that Mueller and the attorneys in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York would need to convince a judge to have a search warrant on his office, his personal uh, uh, computers and phones, his hotel room, and his home. There's something missing here. Does does that drive you crazy? It does drive me crazy, and I'm glad you brought that up because that's exactly right. And to back up and remind people of how we got here, the feds all of a sudden uh, in April raided Cohen's home, his hotel room, his office. Uh, they seized a number of electronic devices from him and got this whole huge trove of evidence involving his business dealings uh, back for many years. And as you said a moment ago, the burden for prosecutors, um, I imagine, is quite high to go to a judge and say, uh, not only would we like to raid the um, premises of an attorney who has privileged attorney-client relationships with his clients, 
one of his clients, as publicly known, is the president of the United <laughs> States. And I imagine a judge in that situation uh, can uh, w- would ask for a very high bar based on the things that oh, yeah. uh, investigators had <laughs> oh, developed yeah. beforehand to say, why do you have probable cause to believe that if you do this raid, you'll discover further evidence of criminal activity. And the feds had to give the judge an answer, which is why the FBI eventually did get the warrants that enabled it to go ahead and do this raid. But we don't know what that evidence was. And we also don't know what evidence the investigators took from Cohen. Um, The way uh, that stands now is the federal judge in the case in the Southern District, Judge Kimba Wood, has appointed an outside Um, attorney, a former judge uh, from that same Southern District of New York to serve as a special master in the case, as it's called. And that judge is going through this trove of evidence to determine what uh, materials seized by the feds are shielded by this attorney-client privilege that Cohen enjoys in some cases with his clients and what is not. And then uh, all the material that is not covered likely will form whatever basis the U.S. Attorney's Office decides to include in an indictment of Cohen, because even though uh, prosecutors there have have revealed that Cohen has been the subject of a months-long criminal investigation, he actually hasn't been charged with anything yet. And so we won't... So part of the difficulty in understanding the story from the outside is, in a lot of cases, you have an indictment, and you can look at it and say... The FBI and the Justice Department say that this subject has committed the following crimes and they allege he's committed the following crimes and they're going to try to prove to a jury that they have enough evidence that that's the case. We still aren't there yet with Cohen, even though we've been doing this Cohen story for more than a month now because of this extra step involved with the discovery of this evidence. There's a hearing in that case in New York City next week. My colleagues uh, Ryan Lucas and Miles Parks are going to go up from Washington for Cohen's next hearing, and we may either learn that this evidence question has been resolved and the prosecutors will get some of the stuff and not the rest of the stuff because it's shielded, or the judge may uh, give the parties more time if if they ask for more time. But that's kind of the next milestone to come here. Well, and, and just to put this into perspective for our, our listeners, uh, the, the master and the judge has said that they're going to do this very quickly. Uh, and if you're talking about just attorney-client privilege, uh, it was stated in court that, uh, that uh, Cohen had three clients, uh, Sean Hannity, the, the uh, uh, gentleman from the uh, RNC, the Republican National Committee that he uh, made a settlement for, and Donald Trump. Uh, so other material may not fall under the attorney-client privilege, and you can't have attorney-client privilege to shield a crime. So the the master is going to have to look at – it's not just communication between client and attorney. It's the purpose of that communication. That's right. The other factor here is prosecutors said in their initial filings when all this was revealed that they had been collecting Cohen's emails uh, for some period of time. He uses many different email accounts, and that speaks to the issue we were discussing a moment ago about how the feds and the Justice Department had to go to a judge and say they had probable cause not only to do this raid of Cohen's physical premises, but to begin collecting on him. There have also been some other press reports that suggest that his um, phone call behavior 
is being recorded, although we don't know whether that's true or not. There was a, a little bit of a snafu whether he his calls were being actually wiretapped or whether there was just a registry of the uh, calls he was making uh, to and from people. But either way, the FBI has been doing surveillance on Cohen for a long time. And as a part of that, uh, the Justice Department, the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York, told the judge that actually they have zero emails between Cohen and Trump. So in that case, they were able to say publicly and to the court, we don't believe there is any material that would be shielded because of this attorney-client relationship. Uh, But Cohen uh, and his attorneys want to protect as much as they can of this material that was seized by the FBI. And initially, what they asked the judge was that they should do the privilege review first and then give a lot right. of the material to the special master who would then be another step before That's the evidence actually got to. Yeah, c- correct. And the, the judge the judge did not agree. And she brought in uh, this special master who's who's doing this evidence review. All right. So that's a great segue to Trump. So uh, yesterday on Monday, we're, we're recording this on, on Tuesday morning, mid-morning. Uh, yesterday, the Washington Post came out with one of its uh, multiple uh, uh, anonymous sourced uh, articles uh, indicating that, uh, that somebody had reported that uh, President Trump – uh, goes into rants or mentions this search warrant on his attorney's office at least 20 times a day. Now, whether it's 20 or whether it's 10, it, to me, is immaterial. But uh, why would the president be in such a snit about this? I mean, it seems that one response, if I were advising him, and I'm certainly not, uh, would be, okay, it, they they uh, rated that. That's that's Michael Cohen's issue. I don't have anything to do with that. Uh, you know, sorry, Mike, but uh, you're on your own. I, 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 there's there's something missing there as well, or am I, am I wrong? I think you're right. Um, certainly, there appears to be at least an inconsistency between the president's public statements and that account in the post. Um, And I don't know how to resolve the two except to say that it may be the case that there's more in this Cohen material, even if there aren't direct emails between Cohen and the president, that is of concern to him for whatever reason. And this is something that we may learn more about next week at this hearing if the feds talk more about what's in this trove of evidence. Um, But we can make a couple of conclusions um, based on what we know already. One is that Cohen has worked as a problem solver and gatekeeper for Trump and a couple of other people for many years. And for example, when journalists would come to Trump Tower in 2016 to talk with Trump, they would talk with Cohen first, and it would be it would be him who uh, came downstairs and got them from the lobby, for example, or they would talk in his lobby, um, excuse me, they would talk in his office before going in to see Trump. And so he's had a great deal of very intimate personal dealings with the president for a long time. But Trump himself um, doesn't use email. And so if Trump, for example, has other intermediaries with whom he communicates and says, make sure Michael knows this or ask Michael this about that, um, I don't believe that second hop of the relationship is covered by the attorney-client privilege. No, although it's, it's Cohen's, 
Cohen's attorneys might argue that it is. So, and and I I welcome your legal expertise here based on your uh, years of doing this. Let's just say Cohen communicates with an assistant or a secretary about things that they want to tell Trump. And then that third person talks with Trump and relays the message and then Trump responds. And then this secretary or other person talks with Cohen. Um, if I understand correctly, that uh, those communications are not shielded by attorney-client privilege because there was a, a third person involved, correct? That's that's correct. Once a third person becomes involved, either in an oral discussion, you have a third person in the room, or uh, if a person gets involved in any kind of uh, handwritten or electronic correspondence, uh, that normally waives any claim of attorney-client privilege. So, again, continuing on my theoretical basis, Cohen appears to have sold his services to the three clients you mentioned, Trump, who's the most uh, well-known in this case, Fox News host Sean Hannity, and Republican um, fundraiser Elliot Broidy, based on the value of this attorney-client privilege, because this is something that Sean Hannity talked about after it was revealed in court that he was Cohen's third client. And whether these clients were fully cognizant about what kind of shield or privilege Cohen could give them or not uh, remains unclear, except for the fact that he has advertised as one of his services this discretion that he appears to be able to offer uh, offer them. So in other words, he, he's been saying to them, if you need some work done, if you need something taken care of, not only can I do it for you, but um, no one can compel me to talk about it in court or give evidence about it. And in some cases that may be so, and in other cases it may not be so, but one of the many things, one of the many threads that's spinning off of this Cohen story will be a test of that value proposition that he's offered these clients over the years. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University and its leadership and faculty strongly support diversity in all of its forms. The college has defined the concept of diversity as acceptance and respect for all and understands that each individual comes with a unique set of life experiences shaped along the dimensions of race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, and gender identity, socioeconomic status, age, abilities, religious beliefs, political beliefs, and all other ideologies. At the Scripps College of Communication, diversity is about understanding one another and moving beyond simple tolerance to embracing and celebrating the rich dimensions contained within each individual. Diversity enables the exploration of varied life experiences in a safe, positive, and nurturing environment. To learn more and find out how you can become part of this diverse community, go to ohio.edu slash Scripps College. We've seen strained interpretations of attorney-client privilege in uh, testimony before the Senate uh, and and the House. That uh, uh, he just uh, the president probably wouldn't like for me to talk about this. You know, that's not real privilege, right? Uh, it, it's it's come up a couple of times, and one one example was um, Donald Trump Jr., the president's oldest son 
talked with the House Intelligence Committee about his role in the kind of the mainstream Russia imbroglio separate from this pitfall about Cohen and his legal relationships. And he was asked about the formulation of the public messaging and talking points surrounding the meeting that Trump Jr. hosted in Trump Tower in 2016 with a delegation of Russians, including at least one Russian-American lobbyist and one Russian attorney. Um, Trump Jr. got emails from an intermediary offering him help from the Russian government with Trump's campaign, and the contents of that meeting and its outcome are disputed. There's probably not going to be an independent account of it that we can get. And then later on, initially, Trump Jr. and Trump Sr., the president, uh, didn't give a correct account of what had taken place when uh, the New York Times began to report on this. And uh, Trump Jr. told the House Intelligence Committee that he (laughs) declined to answer one of their questions about the formulation of these messages because an attorney had been present when he was talking with Trump, and so therefore it was shielded under attorney-client privilege. As you uh, have discussed a moment ago, it, it doesn't Don't really work that so, way. No. But the, his his interrogators or his interlocutors on the Intelligence Committee are Republicans in the majority. They control whether or not, for example, they could issue a subpoena that would compel his testimony or uh, apply some kind of penalty if he didn't give an answer to that question. And so he didn't. Uh, The ranking member on that committee, Representative Adam Schiff of California, came out afterward and complained to the microphones that his Republican majority counterparts were willing to let that claim of privilege stand when, in fact, he argued that it shouldn't. Schiff is himself a former federal prosecutor, so he's also knowledgeable about these matters. But this issue about privilege and, and shield and um, the attorney-client relationship has been a big part of this story for a long time, clearly. All right. So let's toss in a, another factor here that we really haven't talked about, and that is Michael Avenatti. Uh, we have an attorney that's representing Stormy Daniels, and he has been at least the public source for a lot of these Uh, allegations and information to clarify perhaps what the feds were were looking for. All right, so he's representing her both in a defamation case but also in the civil case to try to get out from under this non-disclosure agreement. Uh, His activities seem to me to go well beyond the scope of the litigation that he's involved in. I think that's a fair statement. What What's going on there? Uh, that's another great question, and we don't have a complete answer to it, except to say that Avenatti has become a fellow traveler for the self-styled uh, resistance, as it calls itself, the, the anti-Trump movement in this country. Avenatti is a longtime West Coast LA show business type attorney. Um, he has all kinds of uh, strange stories about his practice and his relationships before now, and that may be how he got into this relationship with Stormy Daniels. Um, but what we don't know is who on the inside 
might be helping him, for example, with these financial documents that right. form the basis of uh, the material that he released about Michael Cohen. The Treasury Department's Inspector General's office has said that it's investigating whether people in Treasury and especially in its financial crimes or financial tracking unit known as FinCEN might be cooperating with Avenatti in some way. Um, but the things that he's been able to establish are not public um, are are not based on public information. These are not public documents that I could ask for under a freedom of information request, for example, or just pull down off a website because they're uh, confidential business and financial transactions records. You don't want people to be able to just come in off the street and ask for the wire transfers that you've made as part of your business or personal banking history. And yet Avenatti has been able to get those in the case of Cohen, although Cohen's attorneys have said that actually the document Avenatti released was a little bit sloppy. There were references to transfers <laughs> to other people named Michael Cohen besides our Michael Cohen, the one we've been talking about. Some one of them guy was in, in Africa, Ca- I believe, Correct. for a couple of hundred bucks. Correct. One uh, one Michael Cohen was in Canada who had nothing to do with this. One Michael Cohen was in Israel and his brother was the one actually getting this money. Um, but a broken clock can be right at least uh, twice a day, according to Avenatti's people. And the statements we talked about earlier in the show confirmed by uh, AT&T, Novartis, and these other companies who've paid him. So that raises the question about whether... Avenatti himself wasn't sure about what to ask for if he's dealing with people inside of the Treasury Department or the Treasury interlocutors he has um, just gave him everything that said Michael Cohen on it in terms of their documents. We don't know. But the other aspect of this that um, is, is potentially complicating is that if Cohen's attorneys can say to a judge that people inside officialdom, including potentially inside the FBI or the Justice Department, have been cooperating with Avenatti, they can argue that that has unfairly biased the investigation that is taking place into Cohen. And so although it might be helping Daniels and Cohen in the short run in terms of the court of public opinion to reveal these things about Cohen's business dealings and expose this other aspect of his life, um, they could have medium-term implications for the criminal investigation that's taking place in New York of Cohen and potentially down the line these suits that you mentioned that he's filed against Cohen and Trump, one for defamation based on comments that Trump made on Twitter and one to try to get out of this non-disclosure agreement. That specific lawsuit has been stayed until the summer out in California. Cohen told the judge there that because of this evidence process and this discovery that's taking place in New York, he would invoke his Fifth Amendment right not to give evidence in that uh, proceeding just because there's a lot of material that could be problematic for him. And uh, the judge in that case agreed, although depending on the outcome of his criminal investigation and his criminal trial in New York, that, um, you know, that judge in California could uh, restart the lawsuit basically once more things come into the public eye in terms of his, his evidence and his business relationships. All right. I want to shift gears, although you say that uh, we're we're still connected, but I want to shift gears over to uh, the Mueller investigation. Uh, This week, he's starting his second year of his uh, investigation. Uh, We've had no indictments or pleas for uh, several months. And it seems like with the addition of uh, Giuliani to the uh, external legal team of the president, we're seeing merging two strategies. It seems to me that we have Mueller uh, approaching methodically 
the legal strategy, and when he comes out with something, uh, at least by reputation, uh, it's buttoned down. There, there's very little legal room. But he's approaching a legal strategy, which by its very nature is slower, more methodical, all the I's dotted, all the T's crossed. We have the president and Giuliani uh, really trying all of this in the court of public opinion, and it's a political and PR argument. So we have legal versus political PR, and those seem to really be going in divergent directions. Do I, that's do right. I have that right? <clears throat> I, think, I think that's exactly right. I think you've characterized it uh, exactly right. But there's an important connection to make between the two, which is this. Okay. The president and Rudy Giuliani and Jay Sicolo and uh, Elliot Flood, who's the new attorney who has joined the legal team, don't know all the evidence that the special counsel's office has developed about the Russian attack on the election and potential relationships between Trump uh, campaign aides and that attack or any other alleged criminal activity that the special counsel's office might have uncovered. And so what they have been able to do in some cases and probably will continue to try to do is denigrate the special counsel and his staff and the Justice Department and the FBI to make that whatever issues down the line from them appear illegitimate, at least to their own supporters. Um, This has been the dedicated strategy, at least uh, of Republicans in the House since last fall, October and November, and the president and his own uh, administration officials and attorneys have joined in more recently. And, and basically the point they make is these guys are uh, biased, they're corrupt, they're abusing their power, you can't trust anything they do. The Justice Department and the FBI are this den of thieves, this warren of treachery, and we cannot accept the legitimacy of any criminal proceeding that issues from whatever they develop as an insurance policy to say if in fact there are future indictments or if there are other charges made by people close to the president uh, on uh, collusion or conspiracy or any other subject that however they play out in the court of law within the world of the president's supporters, they'll never be accepted. So even if people start to go to jail, they will be able to claim, I was railroaded by biased investigators, and they've abused their power, and they're pinning me to the wall to to make me a scapegoat for this conspiracy by the people in the so-called deep state who are going after the president because they don't like him. The, um, the, I don't, the judicial equivalent of fake news. <laughs> Correct. And yeah. and I don't know how much crossover appeal this thesis has with Americans generally. According to public opinion polls, Republicans uh, generally overwhelmingly view Mueller as biased and unfair and as the special counsel investigation as a witch hunt, which is what the president calls it. Independence more uh, in the latest numbers that I saw say that Mueller is an independent actor and that he should be permitted to continue this investigation. And of course, Democrats are hugely in favor of Mueller's work because it damages the president politically and it makes it harder for him to maneuver in terms of um, dealing on a day-to-day basis with international affairs with Russia, certainly. And uh, it, cr- it creates this cloud over the White House, which Democrats really want to be there. But but, um, but the public in, in general, regardless of party, uh, has a fairly short attention span and, and demands action much quicker 
then uh, the legal system usually runs at. Uh, Which is an advantage for the administration. And just, you know, f- for your for your poor listeners who are going to listen to this podcast and try and pick apart all the names and relationships and significances of the conversation that we've been having, it's a great, from a, from a White House and a president's perspective, you don't want to have any scandals. But if you're going to have a scandal, you want to have one like this, because just explaining what Michael Avenatti and who's that said about Michael Cohen and who's that and why is it important, who knows, it takes uh, 45 minutes of airtime for us to really pick apart. And if you're not engaged at a high level and you also are a Republican or you tend to support the president and you're skeptical in the first place about these claims or potential legal problems that Cohen and others are facing, um, it's a really great situation because you can't explain the scandal to somebody in a soundbite. You just can't. It's too difficult. It's not like some of the other political scandals we've had in the past where you could very simply synopsize them in the way you could, for example, with uh, President Bill Clinton back when he was around. Well, you look at Clinton and and you look also at Watergate. There was a break-end and and there was a (laughs) cover-up. Now, now, there were some ancillary issues, but those were two of the, the primary primary things. They, they were understandable. This right. has so many tentacles to it and is so complex that you know people who do it every day have difficulty keeping up. We've had to create explainer stories for the stories that we're writing every day. So, for example, um, the just the the nature of the active measures campaign that Russia waged starting as early as 2014 against the United States is so vast and has so many elements from the physical visit to the United States by Russian intelligence officers developing information about how they later wanted to try and exploit the U.S. information environment to the social media campaign that gets so much attention on Facebook and Twitter, but also elsewhere on Tumblr and Reddit and other platforms, plus the hacking of emails from the DNC and political figures in the United States, plus the uh, cyber attacks against state election infrastructure systems, secretaries of state and election directors and poll workers, and any number of other potential things that might have taken place beyond those, that itself is such a complicated backstory that we have an explainer for when we do digital stories just about that. So when I allude to active measures or the Russian attack on the election, I have to link to that to take people to our own little Wikipedia page so they can get read up on the background before they continue the story since there's so much stuff there. From the perspective of of an editor or a correspondent, there is a vast world of stuff to sink your teeth into, but in terms of communicating it to the audience and explaining it clearly... Um, it's a huge challenge. So and, it, it can more, be, and the more confusing it is, the more it plays into the uh, Trump-Giuliani strategy. Uh, I, I think that's probably so. And also, the president and his supporters uh, in the administration and the Congress enjoy a an almost ahistoric level of automatic support from their own uh, most loyal voters, as evidenced by the public affairs strategy that Giuliani and Trump uh, put into practice recently when he when Giuliani appeared on TV and talked about this. They they went on TV 
and Giuliani admitted that Trump had reimbursed Michael Cohen for paying Stormy Daniels to keep right. quiet before the election. And they, and then Trump himself said on Twitter the following day, yes, I do pay these retainer payments to Cohen, and they may have gone for some kind of problems that he solved for me, but this is a normal thing that attorneys do. And by the way, I deny the underlying allegations by Daniels, so we'll just be able to move on here. That, es- that expresses an amazing level of confidence in the president's political supporters in the, base. the president and yeah. his the president and and his attorneys have admitted to what could be illegal behavior or at least a behavior that in a past context would have caused a huge scandal and they're calculating that it's not going to hurt them in for example the 2018 midterm elections that republicans are going to be able to con- uh, protect their majorities in the house and senate in many cases running as close as they can to the president in the house uh, House Republicans go out there and say, here's a picture of me with Trump. Here's how close I am to Trump. Uh, Trump is my best friend, and he and I are working hand in glove on behalf of you, the voters. And Giuliani and Trump apparently calculated that no concession or no admission within reason about uh, the president's payments to Stormy Daniels or his relationship with Cohen and these payments would embarrass them and cost them political support. That's very significant. And it also explains why the White House feels so confident about this strategy we were talking about earlier to really sandblast the Justice Department and the FBI. Because with those supporters, they're predisposed to agree. They will look at what the president and his supporters say and say, you know, I can't trust this Mueller guy. A new indictment, new charges. Uh, I can't trust that because all these guys in justice and the FBI, they're all crooked. They're out to get us, Trump supporters. And so far, it's been a very effective strategy. And by all appearances, it's going to continue to be. One last question. We'll do this very quickly. The House report is out about this. Uh, The Republicans said no collusion. Democrats said you didn't even do a, a decent investigation. That's over so to speak, but we still have the Senate. Does the Senate have any kind of role to play in all of this? The Senate's role is, by all accounts, fraught because there are tensions within the Senate Intelligence Committee, just like the ones that played out very publicly between Republicans and Democrats on the House Intelligence Committee. But they play out in a very kind of genteel and senatorial way. The Senate <laughs> is the world's the Senate is the world's greatest deliberative body. It works uh, largely by consensus or by collective action, including at the committee level. And so it's unusual to have had the leaks and counter leaks and sotto voce rivalries take place to the degree they've ha- they have within the committee on the Russia report. Uh, the Intelligence Committee has released two kind of installments of whatever work product it's ultimately going to issue. It issued recommendations about election security. It issued findings about the Russian attack on state election systems, which we were talking about a moment ago, the ones that targeted your election director's email and the Secretary of State's office and the way ballots are counted or the way voter registration takes place. And we expect more of those incidental reports down the line from the Intelligence Committee. Um, But nobody knows when they're going to come out and nobody knows what the committee is going to do about this collusion question, in part because no one knows whether the body of evidence that exists in this Russia story is all there is, or whether there's new information that could be discovered that changes the nature of the public understanding. Right now, um, Democrats argue there's enough 
public evidence to say that there was collusion. There obviously are many relationships between uh, President Trump's family members and campaign campaign aides and Russians at the same time that the Russians were attacking the election. For them, that's prima facie evidence of, of wrongdoing or collusion or conspiracy. Republicans say, no, there's no link that takes the line exactly from New York City to Moscow, and that's why the House Intelligence Committee said it couldn't find any evidence of conspiracy. The other criticism that Democrats made of that finding was that it was, in their view, entirely too credulous of witnesses. Um, you know, Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, right. Donald Trump Jr., we talked about him and others, they came in and talked with the committee. They were asked, did you collude? The witnesses said no. And the Republican majority said, okay, well, he says he didn't do it. There must not be any collusion here. Democrats say that's not a real investigation. And this was a fait accompli by the chairman, Devin Nunes of California, to try and give the president headlines he wanted and to try and wrap this up uh, as quickly as possible to avoid embarrassing the president. Nunes has the support of the House Speaker, Paul Ryan, who's also a Republican and a supporter of the president. And Trump was very welcoming of that finding. He cited it many times. And it also has given him a political weapon where he can come out and say, look, the House Intelligence Committee has done its work. It didn't find any wrongdoing here. Any of this scurrilous investigation that continues in the Senate or the Justice Department with the special counsel, it must be a witch hunt because one of these committees is already finished. And that's how I can tell that everyone else is just out to get me, that this is unfair and these people uh, have an axe to grind. Um, Nunes also continues to help the president with denigrating the Justice Department and um, right. uh, helping um, find out things about the nature of the investigations that the Justice Department has been doing at a very secret and legal level um, because that's part of this su- political support that he's giving to the president. The latest story there is that he's in a duel with the Justice Department over wh- what's reportedly the identity of a confidential source in the Russia investigation. We don't know who that person is, whether it's an American or whether it might be a foreign intelligence source overseas. But Nunes and Trey Gowdy, one of the other top Republicans, want to find out who that person is. And uh, the Justice Department says, well, no, we can't tell you who this person's identity is because then you'll tell the world in the way that Nunes did when he released some confidential information in his secret memo. And that's where that uh, tension stands between the two sides. Another tentacle to all of this. Well, Too Phil, many tentacles. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Phil, you get an A for explaining this to, to everybody. Uh, I hope that we can come back to you as things unfold as we get closer to midterms with all of this still hanging uh that's going to be an interesting time so we want to talk to you again in the future well thank you professor and thank you for having me on your show no problem today we've been talking with npr's national security editor phil ewing about the status of the trump russia investigation Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We welcome your feedback, so please take time and rate our podcast or review it. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, 
at ohio.edu.